0: The worst thing about the United States is that there is always hope for it.
1: Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is the Vice Podcast Show. I'm joined today by Professor Hamid Dabashi, a professor of comparative literature at Columbia University, who's been writing about the Arab uprising, the crisis in Syria, and much else. Professor Dabashi, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Raihan Thanks for having me. Uh, Professor Dabashi, you are originally from Iran, uh, yet you write about the broader, what we call the Middle East. Uh, And I wonder, when you were growing up, what was your sense of this wider world? Did you see yourself as connected to this larger Middle Eastern uh, world? Very much so.
0: You know, Rehan, as you know, any part of the world that you, you grew up in, in my case, southern part of Iran, is a it, is it cross-currents of world events. In my particular case, I grew up in part of Iran that was very much under the influence of obviously Iranian culture, Indian culture, because of its connection to the Persian Gulf and the uh, Arab uh, Sea and Indian Ocean, and also African culture in terms of cuisine and uh, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, so a combination of African, South Asian, Iranian, and Arab culture was the environment in which I grew up. And uh, that very much stays with you wherever you go. And when I went to Tehran to go for my undergraduate studies, not, I mean, there was an element of them going to the capital. It was a major cosmopolis that was undoubtedly very important. But it was not; it didn't have a culture shock or anything. The other thing is that because of the British colonial presence in the southern part of Iran, during, because of the oil going back all the way to the Mossadegh period, there was an exposure to European culture in southern part of Iran that uh, others lacked in uh, in northern part of Iran, which was more under the Russian uh, uh, influence.
1: So you had a larger conception of a post-colonial or a global south world in which these intellectual currents were precisely, traveling, you were exposed to precisely. them. When you say that there was a European influence uh, in... Euro city in, in southern Iran. I wonder, was the encounter with European culture, did it feel like an encounter of equals? Or did it feel as though European culture uh, felt dominant on the rise, whereas uh, these other cultures were the cultures of subject peoples? And so European culture had to be reckoned with in a different kind of way.
0: Not really. It was not uh, from a position of weakness. Because we were in Iran, and to this day we are, very historically conscious conscious of our own imperial history that, you know, goes back all the way to the Achaemenids and comes all the way to the 7th century with the Muslim invasion uh, of the 7th century. And uh, integral, part and parcel of the Islamic civilization, beginning with the Umayyads all the way to the Abbasids. But as the Persian component of the Islamic civilization, as you know, very soon, the eastern part of the uh, Islamic empire begins to become predominantly Persian in language and culture, beginning with the ghaznavids and the Sajjurids, all the way to Mongol Empire. The, the lingua franca of Mongol Empire, which was the largest empire that the world had ever seen, was Persian. That is, most of the sources in history of the Mongol Empire are in Persian. And then all the way coming down to the formation of Mughal Empire in India, which, as you know, just before the British colonialism was, again, predominantly Persian, you feel connected to succession of multiple imperial contexts, production of language and literature and art and architecture, I mean, you name it. So, and then as a result, the rise of European Empire is immediately put into a historical context that this is not you know, a Fukuyama end of history is just part of a history. So, my living in New York in the heart of this empire is not very different from other people like me who have lived in India or in, uh, in Baghdad or in Damascus or in Istanbul, you know, in other parts of. Uh, so, you
1: see it as a part of a larger cycle of rise and decay exactly. that is con- ongoing, continuous. Exactly. exactly. I do wonder, so given that Iran had never been formally conquered by a European power, uh, if that had led to some different political sensibility as opposed to other post-colonial societies that had emerged, that had become independent having been under the direct uh, authority of other powers?
0: So you're correct that yes, Iran was not colonized the way, say, Egypt was with Napoleon or India was by the British or Algeria was by, uh, by the French, but nevertheless it was very much in the shadow of colonial experiences. So it is a liminal space uh, in terms of post-colonial history. It's a liminal space that you both are part of the colonial context, and yet the element of anti-colonial nationalism, third world socialism, and militant Islamism, the formation of three major ideological uh, forces that resist imperialism is very much evident in Iran of the last 200
1: years. You've expressed great optimism about the Arab Spring, about the various uprisings that have occurred across the region, Uh, yet, the 1979 Iranian Revolution was also uh, a moment that led to great optimism uh, among intellectuals across the political spectrum, particularly on the left side of the political spectrum, uh, as uh, a potential site of liberation uh, and something that might lead to larger changes, uh, greater democratization in the region. Uh, and yet uh, it's not entirely clear that that was the ultimate result, uh, either in Iran or in the broader region. So I wonder. When you think about those two moments, 1979 versus 2020, uh, 2010 and what's followed, um, what do you see as the contrasts? First of all, the comparison you make is very natural. Uh,
0: but, I mean, I was around and I was thinking and I was writing as a, I continue to be under both circumstances. Iranian revolution just was one revolution. It happened in Iran. It's a major country, but it was one uh, country. But the Arab revolutions are transnational. I mean, they're happening from Morocco in various ways, from Morocco to Syria, from Turkey. I mean, who would think that in Turkey would would have a, around the uh, uh, Estiglal uh, uprising all the way to, uh, to Yemen, and then with variations in Iran and uh, in Iraq. The transnational disposition of this particular uh, source of revolutions, that they begin to feed on each other. And as soon as counter-revolutionary forces want to control it in one place, it sort of pops up in, in another. And there are different political cultures. The way it unfolds in Tunisia is different than in Egypt, it's different than in Syria, Then different in Bahrain. And each one of them is like a jigsaw puzzle or like a, like a chess game, that as soon as you move one uh, uh, figure, then the, it affects the entirety of the, the, of the configuration. So it has proven far more difficult to contain. Very much so, but I mean, your your question, why is it that I'm so, and I continue to be optimistic, despite the, the carnage, despite the, the coup in Egypt, despite the suppression in Bahrain, despite the fact that Saudi Arabia just marched into Bahrain and suppressed the democratic uprisings, and the horrid uh, uh, situation in Syria. In my book on the, on the Arab Spring, uh, I make a distinction between total revolution and open-ended revolution. In fact, I do a critique of total revolution. Overnight, the state will fall, hammer and sickle will go up, and all would be hunky-dory. That kind of conception of, uh, of a revolution, in my judgment, is part of the grand uh, narratives of, of history that certainly in our part of the world has lost legitimacy of one grand narrative that will come and emancipate. I, as a result, opt for and cultivate the theoretical foundation of what I call open-ended revolution. Revolution not as a Homeric epic with a Gandhi or a Nehru or a Gamal Abdel Nasser or a Mossad coming and leading. At a discrete endpoint. Exactly, yeah. but uh, but, revolution more as a kind of a Bakhtinian novel, hmm? Hmm. H- heteroglossia. You don't know what exactly is going to happen in the next page, and as a result, agency of social formation, the significance of public space, uh, my thinking is very much under the influence of Hannah Arendt, the way she began, I mean, after against a history of 200 years of theorization of French Revolution. In her book on, on revolution, began to pay far more critical attention to the American Revolution and, and made a distinction between liberation and freedom. Liberation from tyranny and freedom to participate in politics, which, for Hannah Arendt, was uh, predicated on the primacy of the public space. And as a result, Tahrir Square, or Taksim Square, or Azadi Square, in my judgment, are being reconstituted as a terra incognita, as a tabula rasa of political participation, on which no grand ideology, No grand narrative has any legitimacy. And people are making it as they go. The reason that President Obama or Europeans or the Saudis or the Qataris, they don't know what to do with these revolutions, is because there is no grand narrative that they can dismantle.
1: Well, One anxiety is that in a society built around permanent insurrection, permanent instability, this is not necessarily a very attractive society uh, in which to live. Uh, the idea of pervasive fear, the idea that uh, property rights or other rights might not be solid, but rather might melt into air. The open-ended revolution that you describe, I see how that might seem like an attractive alternative to a rigid total revolution along some dimensions. Yet, along other dimensions, you can see why one might simply crave Stability no uh, in which to build a life. No
0: doubt no doubt in the short run. This is going to be messy is going to be confusing. is going to be destabilizing And what, what, uh, the American interest in the region is
1: stabilization
0: and now is could complete
1: uh, Okay, and arguably also the interest of the civilian yeah, yeah. population of Syria No, no, absolutely
0: and what I think has happened over the past two or three years first of all theoretically public space for me is not just a uh, romantic notion of public space public space eventually and inevitably will transform into in my formulation and thinking three modes of tucvillion voluntary associations for me given the history of the region first and foremost is independent labor unions second is women's rights organizations and third is the student assemblies the transmutation and institutionalization of public space into labor unions and women's rights organizations and student assemblies begins to build the 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 uh, the element of social cohesion and and continuity from ground up. Precisely for that reason, the ruling uh, regimes, even after Mubarak, or potentially after. Uh, Uh, Assad or anybody, they're far more concerned about these uh, social formations rather than grand ideologies of uh, one sort or another. So in response to your question, yes, in the short, run and in fact, Zizek, in one of his comments about these revolutions said so, that in the short run, this is destabilizing, is disappointing. People will just get tired of going to demonstrations and and not knowing what is happening uh, uh, tomorrow. Uh, but, at the same time, in my opinion, between a total chaos and a total restoration of the ancien regime, we will have in the in the main body of the social movement as we are seeing it, the formation of these uh, voluntary associations associations that will secure the continuity of the of the revolution really thinking. But you have to well, that know- sounds as
1: though you, you believe that these Arab uprisings will eventually evolve into bourgeois revolutions that will lead to societies in which you have an independent There is a society. profound
0: element of bourgeois forces uh, in this and neoliberal uh, thinking. There is no uh, doubt about that. I mean, we, we're, uh, the world economy hasn't changed. The, the globalization hasn't changed. These are part and parcel of, uh, of the same phenomenon. But at the same time, for me, this, the the continuity of the revolutionary thinking is contingent on the formation of the labor unions, that inevitably will come into conflict with uh, with neoliberalism, and as a result, historically, in my way of thinking, from the clash from the between the labor class and the neoliberal economies institutions of democracy will emerge, not just the labor class to assert its, uh, its power and interest and, and so forth, but uh, historically what, what we have had in, in our part of the world is ideas of democracy are, are wonderful, but this, this, this social, and political, and economic basis- That can undergird
1: democracy. Have been absent. Well, so one thing I find interesting is that you identify as a man of the political left. And the Arab Spring has been a moment, certainly uh, in among Western publics, uh, during which there's been a lot of scrambling in terms of how we understand these uprisings. So when you think about uh, those who are referred to as neoconservatives in American public life, uh, a very diverse group, maybe not even a group that ought to be characterized as a single stream, but just to use that term for our purposes, uh, people who have advocated the idea of more broadly representative or democratic governments in the region. And yet you see a cleavage among some neoconservatives, with some saying that, look, even if you have Islamist regimes that emerge, if they're democratically elected, you know, we should forgive or sort of, you know, should not necessarily object to the fact that these will oftentimes be anti-American, anti-Zionist regimes because this is part of a healthy political reordering. Whereas you have other people who identify as neoconservatives who say that no, these are deeply illiberal regimes, that's problematic. And similarly, you see divides on the left, cleavages on the left in terms of how to interpret uh, these political movements. So it seems as though these categories of right and left, uh, and and you've written about this as well, uh, don't seem to give us very good guidance in how to understand these political You're developments.
0: You're absolutely correct. You're
1: absolutely correct. So I mean it, you know when for example uh, in your writing about Iran you have you've spoken positively of the Green Revolution. And, of course, many critics of the Iranian regime, including you know, Americans of a hawkish inclination who oppose the idea of an Iranian nuclear weapon, et cetera, were also praising this regime. So, I mean, did that put you in an awkward position to find yourself with uh uh,
0: Yes, and see, I, I advocate and I still advocate the Green uh, Movement because I saw it as the transmutation of uh, uh, staunch, uh, ideological uh, revolution into a, a civil rights movement, and I have called it a civil rights movement. And then, as you rightly say, McCain became a, 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 began to support a, a green uh, thing, and Obama began to, began to support it, etc. So then. I began, and uh, b- before I began to dissociate myself and my thinking about the green movement from the the right wing of Americans, I had to also settle my accounts with my my friends and comrades on the left because they began to dismiss it and say, "Oh, this is a bourgeois revolution." The kids in the northern part of Tehran they think their vote has to be counted twice. So I had to do a, a certain corrective lens that no, this is not a bourgeois revolution. There's a profound element of class in it, but needs to be articulated, was vague. If you, if you listen to Musavi's own talk, he kept saying, I'm not the leader of this revolution. This is really a, a massive movement, I'm only a, a, a comrade uh, of it. But as soon as you, you begin to correct uh, position with the left, suddenly the right comes to claim, to claim the, the Green Movement. So you have to do it, uh, you, you have to do the same correcting, corrective links on the right. This to me is, 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 But back to 1979, we didn't have that problem. We knew exactly what the revolution in, back in 1979 was, and solidarity was, with it was not confusing. But here, because the old categories are falling, and because we are facing, I mean, we're back in uh, 1848 when Marx was writing about uh, the, the revolution. When the Paris Commune happens, pa- uh, 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 Marx has to rethink his conceptions uh, of the revolution. So, if you uh, say between the between Communist Manifesto and uh, the 18 Brumaire, you see how Marx begins to adjust. So, we have a historical antecedent of how massive social movement revolutions that happen. You have to be more agile in your critical thinking rather than dogmatic, dogmatic on the left or right.
1: When we look at Syria, you've written about statisms of the right and the left and the idea that the political conflict happening in the United States right now over what we ought to do in Syria, it seems interesting and illustrative of many, you know, larger ideas. Uh, You know, the idea that ultimately, the United States is going to be decisive, ultimately uh, you know, whatever American foreign policy happens to be you know, is, is important, et cetera. But you've written that we really shouldn't be thinking first and foremost about the Syrian state and who controls it and who doesn't control it. I mean, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Idea?
0: You see, the thi- this part is part of my sort of the architecture of my thinking that I'm constitutionally, I wouldn't say I'm an anarchist, but I'm very suspicious of state formations. I mean, as you saw in Egypt, uh, as soon as the Muslim Brotherhood came to power, they began to try to monopolize uh, the power. And then you had a military coup. So my sort of the upstream from the question that you're asking is for me is the significance of the strengthening of uh, uh, the civil society, of public space of voluntary associations of, the, of those three sources that I, told, that I said, those to me are far more important than who will control the uh, state apparatus. Right now, as you see, you have the bloody criminal Assad regime and you have all of these uh, uh, equally criminal uh, forces, you know, financed by Saudis, by the Qataris, by Americans, etc. vying for what? Competing for what? For power. They want a state power.
1: And controlling of the state. My argument is and competing for legitimacy because the idea of legitimacy is what gives you overseas development assistance Bravo, the right to speak on behalf of the state. Legitimacy
0: ipso facto
1: is a public. Uh,
0: they have to be recognized by public yes. as as legitimate. They cannot imagine it from from heaven. It has to be acknowledged by the public, hmm. by the people, by the citizenship. This is why this is the birth of citizenship. I mean, this bloody horror in Syria can go on for when? How long? One day has to come to an end. My argument in the essay that you refer to is, you can conquer a land on horse, but you have to come down to rule it. When you come down to rule it, these Syrians, 26 million of them, will not be the same Syrians who endured the the fear and intimidation and horror from Hafez al-Assad to Bashar al-Assad. These are different Syrians. This is uh, a different conception of rights of citizenship. So much
1: presumably depends on how the conflict unfolds. For example, if the conflict unfolds for long enough and is sufficiently traumatic, one can imagine a scenario in which the Syrian public would welcome another authoritarian regime uh, if it frees uh, the population from the, the violence and the depredations uh, of this lawless period. Listen,
0: right now as we speak, there are six million uh, Syrians who have been dislocated, two million uh, out of their country. So in fact, a state, a Syria is a, is a fictive state. is really uh, uh, effectively dismantled. I just wrote an essay on a documentary on Camp Zatari in uh, in uh, uh, Jordan. That I look at Camp Zatari, which is horrid. It, it was supposed to be ten thousand, and there are hundred thousand plus people in there. That I look at that uh, Camp Zatari, and I see the, the future cosmopolis there. Because you don't have, uh, Egypt is a different story because Egypt, you, you have 80 million population and your point is absolutely correct. People want to have a stability, continuity, daily bread, daily jobs, uh, uh, etc. But it's not just Egypt, it's also Syria. And if you look at uh, Syria, the, the, if the pressure of these uh, revolutionary uprisings is such that it's impossible to imagine any one of these figures, I mean, Uh, Morsi was providing a a modicum of stability for the society. Look at the June 30th demonstration in Cairo. I mean, I don't want to haggle numbers because people are haggling numbers, but the fact is that millions of Egyptians a year after Sisi was in power and was doing the that he could to bring stability and so forth, th- millions of Egyptians were out in the streets demonstrating against, uh, against Sisi, the fact, uh, against uh, uh, Morsi. The fact that the army and Sisi took advantage of that and has its own agenda is a different story. But my point is that even in most populated, if you look at the region, the three most significant countries are really Egypt... Iran and Turkey. And each one of them has a problem which is integral to the rest of the the region. So uh, the the catalytic effect of these uh, these three pillars and what is in in between them. And then smaller countries like Tunisia provides examples of how could a post-revolutionary process uh, operate. Gives us a picture that Going back to the original point, that this population, 300 million human beings in, in the region, they are not the, the ideas of, uh, look at the, uh, the slogans of the revolution, uh, Egyptian revolution. Hurriya has nothing to do with the United States or Israel or anything. Hurriya, freedom, social justice, uh, bread. So economy is part of it, but there are other issues that has to do with the dignity and integrity of citizens.
1: Some right. of your writing about the Syria crisis has struck me as a bit evasive for this reason. When you're looking at the unfolding crisis, when you're looking at the level of violence, when you're looking at the internally displaced and also the refugee outflows, uh, this raises legitimate questions regarding security. You know, when you look at uh, the fact that uh, some of the violence spilled over into Turkey. Obviously Jordan has been transformed by it. Uh, there's a great deal of anxiety in Israel and elsewhere. So, this working through, you know, in a way there may well be a, a normative and cultural transformation that's happening through the process of displacement. But it seems understandable to me that people are asking, well, what is to be done? What can be done? What can be done on behalf of this population? And not, again, not purely in a generous, uh, you know, purely altruistic sense, but also how do we contain this chaos from spreading throughout the region and, and causing greater l- dislocation elsewhere? And so that leaves us with a question, you know, well, who is going to do what? You know, kind of what role uh, should the United States play, et cetera? And, and it seems that, you know, Some of your position is that, well, a pox on both their houses position. So, you know, it certainly seems that the Iranians are supporting the Assad regime. There are various other regimes that are as well, either directly or indirectly. Um, And, you know, the U.S., like many other countries, is struggling to think through what, how do we make sense of this opposition? How do we restore stability somehow, some healthy, constructive way?
0: (laughs) Uh, i don 't think at least in my own thinking i 'm evasive. Mm-hmm. I mean I think that I, uh, I swing mm-hmm. between two modes of thinking about uh, about the region. one is historical and as a result inevitably theoretical, speculative, and one is day to day events. A massacre happens in, uh, in Syria. Um, innocent people are, are gassed. I immediately, the most recent piece that I uh, wrote, I immediately take a position. I never, uh, I hold Bashar al Assad, I just wrote, okay. responsible for this uh, mass murder. If he did it, gas, yes, he did it by commission. If he did not do it, he failed as a head of a state to protect his citizen, though it's by, by uh, omission. So it's not that I'm wishy-washy mm-hmm. that, uh, well, maybe he did it or maybe he did it. Uh, I make a point, immediately come to the, uh, to the sort of cut to the chase. What is the mm-hmm. issue? Uh, we have had innocent uh, people uh, gassed and, and killed and I hold Bashar al-Assad uh, responsible. This doesn't mean that I'm not aware of what the Russians are doing, what the Iranians are doing, what the uh, uh, Saudis are doing, the Qataris, the Israelis, the uh, Hezbollah, et cetera. So I have all of this down uh, on the table, like a chess, and I'm looking at them and see w- who is doing what, uh, et cetera. But at the same time, as I go into the thicket of the analysis, I occasionally pull back as a sort of a cinematic uh, metaphor, and I have a long shot, so I oscillate between long medium and yeah. and, and uh, clo- close up and in as a result, if you look at my writing over the last like three three years. I have a sculpted vision of what is, what is happening. I, I am not away, uh, sort of hesitant from details, but I'm not getting lost in the details uh, either. If you have a journalistic thing, oh my God, look, uh, six million is located, for, with which I, I, I sympathize, you, you don't allow yourself an analytical, theoretical, sort of a speculative distance from the scene in order to be able to think differently. I mean, we are in a very bizarre world historic moment. And there is no formula. I mean, if you are sort of left, classical left or classical right, uh, you know, you, 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 have, you have an angle, you see certain things, but also but you're missing uh, the, 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 the full picture. My, my own position is the reality of this mammoth that is unfolding in front of us. And nobody has a vision. I mean, in one of the major things that I that I uh, d- uh, talk about in my writing is the question of regime of knowledge. When, when people uh, scream, uh, people demand the overthrow of the regime, this regime is not just the state apparatus, it's also regime of knowledge. How
1: do we know? A way of thinking.
0: Yeah, how do we know what we know? I mean. This is also self-critical, looking at my own discipline, looking at you know, political science, sociology, area studies, Orientalism, all of these succession in my, on my book, in my book on post-Orientalism, I talk about generations and gradation of knowledge production. Say from classical orient- orientalism of the 19th century to right now think tanks producing what I call disposable knowledge. But it's not just the, the, that kind of knowledge. Even the most conscientious sort of political s- s- scientist, th- we don't have, we need to come up with new language. We d- if we employ old fashioned uh, concepts and categories, we are in effect assimilating the realities and backward. producing them. Precisely. Well, let's
1: talk about the concept of agency. So you you know, having been raised in Iran, but you've spent much of your life now in the United States uh, as a close observer of U.S. political discourse and particularly about U.S. discourse regarding this region and the exercise of power in this region. I want to talk to you about the idea of agency because it seems to me that in the course of this debate... It really is a debate about American power and American agency and American responsibility. And I suppose one could say, and this seems to be an inchoate sense among many Americans, that, well, gosh, let's wash our hands of this. I mean, you know, why should we think of ourselves as being relevantly responsible in this region at all? Uh, This really shouldn't be our concern. Uh, This fixation uh, is that, uh, tell me about your view of American agency and how that's changed and, and how you see it unfolding in the course of the Syria crisis. I mean, do you think that uh, you know, America has an imperial sense uh, of itself? Oh, absolutely. And that's
0: American state apparatus not American people, I make a cl- clear distinction. Remember, we have had just the Occupy Wall Street movement uh, in, in our own country right here. We have had the Indignato movement in Europe. We have had in Turkey, in Greece, in uh, uh, student uprising in Quebec, uh, you know, the uprising in, uh, in, uh, in Brazil. I mean, there's something is happening globally. It's not just uh, in the Arab and Muslim world, including United States, as we saw during the Occupy Wall Street. So far, I mean, look at the figure of Obama, look at the the first election of Obama back in 2008, and the euphoria of joy and hope and anticipation I live in Harlem. I, I saw it vis- visibly uh, in, with my own eyes, of anticipation, that and, and hope and and excitement that he generated among the younger generation of Americans who wanted to have a different conception of their uh, of their country. And I have no doubt that Obama was was cheating or was lying. I believe that when Obama spoke against the Iraq War, he really meant it, and uh, when he you know was criticizing any number of uh, foreign policies, he meant it. But then then he moves into the heart of the imperial machinery in Washington, D.C. Interest groups and think tanks and APAC and winap and all of these things begin to work their work and political machinery and the, and the, and the Congress and, and all of these forces. And then it assumes the, the American power, military power, assumes a reality sui generis. How does this machine think? We have regional interests. Saudi Arabia is our uh, ally, Israel is our ally, Pakistan is our ally, so these are the, 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 the forces that are supporting us. Iran and Russia and uh, Syria and Hezbollah and Hamas, these are our- So we're
1: chessboard.
0: Our enemies. So uh, as I wrote recently uh, about, uh, about Obama's lack of policy, it's just, just not Obama's lack of policy about uh, Syria, it's just it's a short-sightedness. Okay, and the absence of critical thinking, this NSA, uh, uh, you know, uh, issue that they're reading our emails and, uh, uh, and listening to our phone calls, to me, it's just gibberish, so they listen. What, what does that mean? There's lots of facts, but how do you read the facts? You don't read facts by hiring somebody from Princeton, Harvard, or uh, Columbia with high IQ and great uh, degree in security studies. You read facts with the cultivation of public, as Emmanuel call, called it, public reason, critical intelligence. I have written on this: the reason that we have a pervasive element of conspiracy theories in this country, from JFK's assassination to ev- events of 9-11, just ha- uh, the anniversary was yesterday, is the absence of a public intelligent discourse of discussing about uh, these issues. And as a result, as soon as Obama or any other president, doesn't matter, I mean, we, I, I don't believe, in my own uh, lifetime at least, we will have a more eloquent, a more principled person than Obama when he went to office. But now we're talking about drone killings and about kill lists Made out of uh, uh, of Obama, so yes, U.S. has imperial interests. Things is strategically things in terms of uh, its global interest. Looks at Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea, re- oil resources, uh, etc. And in as you said, the metaphor of chess game c- comes into operation. What is actually happening on the ground is entirely outside the political DNA of this political culture. It is exactly the opposite of Iranians. Iranians work, the Iranian political apparatus, works exactly the opposite. They're far more powerful in Afghanistan, they're far more powerful in Iraq, they're present in Syria, they're present in Lebanon, they're present in, in Palestine, uh, uh, etc. Because Americans go and bomb from the air, and Iranians go from the ground and begin to cultivate alliances and, and uh, uh, so forth. The re- this, this difference in a strategy and in political thinking will continue. This is the dilemma that they are facing with in, uh, in Syria. Obama can start bombing Syria any day. tomorrow can he stop bombing. So to what result? Iranians will start picking up uh, the pieces and forming alliances in whatever shape or form uh, will happen so Going back to your question. Yes, Americans are confused. They don't know what to do with these revolutions because there is something wrong with the very intelligent military apparatus. Huh? The, uh, what? what uh, Harold Laswell in his essay, 1944, 45, called it uh, garrison state. The essay was about United States. Garrison state mentality that sees the whole world as late uh, Charles Johnson put it in his uh, blow up trilogy, as a, as a military, uh, you know, as a, a strategic board, how to move military, not how to look at environment and resources and people's aspirations, people's dignity, etc.
1: But when we think about imperialism, I mean, the term is obviously used derisively, yet the imperial is related closely to the cosmopolitan, uh, the idea of obligations that stretch beyond one's borders uh, and the idea that American power creates obligations as well. Um, You know, certainly literally when you look at uh, the ideas undergirding post-war American grand strategy, the idea is that, you know, you build a web of constraints. You uh, build a web of security obligations and commitments. And the idea is that these security obligations and commitments will deter conflict from erupting. Uh, So, you know, on one level it seems that you want people to have a more broad-minded and cosmopolitan view, you having grown up in southern Iran, and you know seeing your culture as a product of the intermingling of many different cultures, etc. And it seems that given the power of the United States and how it's enmeshed economically, strategically, but also culturally um, in the Middle East, that it's inevitable that such a society would have a debate ar- around what to do. Uh- uh, such, such, such as U- U.S. As, as a society like the U.S. would yeah, have a debate yeah. about what to do. Yeah. And so, you, you know, as, as someone who is a participant in American public life, I mean, how would you want to inform that debate?
0: Excellent. Excellent question. You see, going back to the, to the origin of your question, we make a, a distinction. In fact, Kerry, when he was running for office, made the <laughs> distinction between uh, empire and hegemony. This is an empire without hegemony. And in fact, I think it was Kerry who said, I don't want an empire without a hegemony, I want a hegemony without an empire. And because of its geographical location, because of its history, because of the fundamentally Christian disposition of its uh, uh, thinking, any number of uh, reasons one might uh, give, it lacks a kind of uh, uh, caring intellect. Caring inter- intellect. Uh, that we have seen in other empires. You're absolutely correct that cosmopolitanism and imperial thinking all go uh, together. But if you look at the presence of British imperialism in India, the first, as my colleague Gaurav Vishen argues in Masks of Conquest, the first departments of English literature, which means the transformation of English literature into a modus operandi of humanistic thinking, begins in the aftermath of the Macaulay Act in India. Uh, Macaulay, you know, in Macaulay Uh Act, we said we need a a class of Indians who look Indian from outside but think like us. But there are all sorts of unanticipated consequences to the formation of uh, a a humanistic literary tradition uh, from which Gandhi emerges. You see, you you don't have control, or Nehru uh, emerges. You don't have control over every uh, hegemonic sort of move uh, that you make. In United States, and I'm not the first one to say it, Tocqueville said it. I mean, uh, the anti-intellectual disposition of this particular country, I mean, from Tocqueville's Democracy in America, i mean the, the one chapter begins among all civilized or western nations there is no country less inclined towards philosophy than than united states all the way to other sociologists that have uh, written on this particular aspect because it's uh, more or less is Insular, it is satisfied. It has has a pragmatism uh, aspect to it, and as a result, a global consciousness that it's compatible with global power has never existed uh, in this. And there is, in fact, a, a discrepancy between a provincialism. Uh, of the political culture and the imperial uh, uh, conquest. And so the will to conquer is there, but the hegemony, the imagination, the literary, cultural, etc., does not
1: quite adopt We're talking about American insularity and parochialism, and yet there is a way in which American popular culture uh, has so shaped the wider world that there's a kind of dialogic interaction. Uh, perhaps you know, America is inward-looking and insular, yet... American culture has made the world more American or at the very least more familiar with American ideas and cultural forms. So don't you think there's been kind of a two-way trade, a kind of mutual cultural transformation? Listen, I absolutely
0: agree. Of course it's a dialogical. And uh, like the heart of any empire, uh, people come into the heart of the empire and enrich it in language, in literature, in cuisine, uh, in, in every way. Uh, but what, I'm, what, I'm, what I always argue is, and I put it this way, people in India don't eat Indian food, they eat food. People in Mexico don't eat Mexican food, they just eat food. Only in New York you eat, oh, we go Mexican or we go Indian. Another, another way, word, in the heart of empire, you nativized other worldly cultures. I mean, I wrote a piece, Can Non-Europeans Think? If Mozart sneezes, that's music. And I'm sure, I put it parenthetically, he he sneezes very melodiously. But the most sophisticated Arabic or Indian or uh, Persian music is ethnomusicology, ethnicize. Yes, American culture is exceedingly important, both domestically and there, it has a global reach and, and attraction, particularly to the, to the youth. But all you need is to travel outside the United States. Go to Egypt, go to Delhi, go to
1: uh, uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, and you see that there's a different world. One thing I wonder about is that when we see... American power through a different lens. When we see American power as decentered, when you see the United States as one great power among many others, just this idea of a gradual shifting away from yeah, yeah. what has been a unipolar world, then suddenly the United States looks rather attractive, I think, oh, I'd argue, relative absolutely. to other great absolutely. powers absolutely. and the ways in you know which know they exert you know their I they say,
0: Listen, I become a staunch pro American the minute. <laughs> I leave here and somebody says something nasty about uh, Americans. Oh, I, I remember when, when the second term that Bush was elected, a newspaper in London ran, how could uh, 10 million people, or 50 million people so stupid? That was the, uh, mm-hmm. the caption. And my r- response was, all well, really, as opposed to Blair? Uh, mm-hmm. Blair was the God's gift to humanity, so far as the intelligence is concerned. So you're right that from the outside, uh, uh, US appeals far more attractive. And not only those who have not come here, even those who like, like me who live here is far more attractive. But also, there is, uh, I mean, once I said, wrote something that uh, is, a, is a peculiar paradox that the worst thing about the United States is that there is always hope for it follow? Mm-hmm. You, you can't quite give up. Mm. I mean, I, I wake up in the morning, I, I walk in on my campus in my streets, my kids go to public school, I go, and I see nothing but decency and hard work and principled people. And then suddenly something, Hegelian Aufgehoben happens in the state apparatus that goes around the world and starts shooting from the from the hip as if uh, as if they, they don't have identical hopes, aspirations, and expectations. Professor. So I, so I attributed, sorry to interrupt, uh-huh. I attributed to the nature of power. It is the nature of the power, and it's not American. Chinese could be doing the same, Russians, uh, Iranians, or whatever.
1: Professor Dabashi, what is post-colonialism?
0: Uh, post-colonialism is a mode of knowledge and ideology and political action production, which is contingent on the phenomenon called colonialism. Colonialism in the sense of 19th and 20th century European uh, uh, colonization, which was generated by the engine of uh, capitalism. That is not just any uh, territorial conquest, is a territorial conquest by virtue of the engine of production that is contingent on capital, labor, and market. And the logic of capital labor and market requires cheap labor, cheap raw material, expanded market. That's uh, how it works. And because local production here in Brooklyn or anywhere is not sufficient, ipso factum, the moment that Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nation, wealth was not national. Wealth was already transnational. So by uh, the end of post-colonialism, my point is that in the period of globalization, that uh, thinkers like Hart and Negri talk about, no longer we talk of imperialism, but the condition of empire. I don't completely agree uh, agree with it, but that's a good way of thinking. The modes of ideological resistances to that kind of colonialism have exhausted their possibilities. This is what I mean as the subtitle of the end of post-colonialism. That yes, if you look at the history of the region over the last two hundred years, you have had impi- well, you have had two things: the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire, the most important empire. Uh, Uh, prior to uh, uh, European uh, imperialism. So that is crumbling itself. And then you have European interest in the aftermath of, say, Crimean War or some such date. And uh, resistances to that Uh, imperial domination, colonialism is, assumes, invariably, three different ideological formations. Militant Islamism, anti-colonial nationalism, third world socialism. And they have had, uh, I don't dismiss them, at certain periods they have been extremely provocative, attractive. They have caused revolutionary movements, uh, uh, political loyalties, etc. But the way I see it, none of these grand ideologies is any longer legitimate, operative, convincing, mobilizing. And all of, not just Islamism, my colleague, uh, uh, friend and colleague Asif Bayat talks about post-Islamism. It's not just Islamism as a militant ideology that has uh, ended. It is also the way we have conceived third world socialism or anti-colonial nationalism, they too have ended. Which means we are at the threshold of discovering, going back to an earlier point we were talking about, discovering a new language of talking about uh, agency, your point, and a new uh, sort of coagulated form of solidarity that will mobilize the people for political ends. To me, because I, uh, at this stage, I might be wrong later, at this stage, I don't see the rise of any ideology convincing enough for political mobilization. I look at the transformation of the public space into three forms of voluntary associations as the modus operandi of resistance to two things, both potential tyranny of the state, which would
1: inevitably happen, and imperial uh, intervention. Professor Dabashi, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely my pleasure. We should do this more.